Hey, it's Kim here. I have a content warning for this episode. We talk a lot about child abuse in the recap and particularly in my history segment. So if that's not something that you want to listen to, don't put yourself through it. Skip on through to about 37 minutes. I'll see you on the other side. Hello, hello, and welcome to A Country Podcast, the podcast that looks at the effect a tiny imaginary town called Wannon Valley had on Australian culture in the 80s and the 90s. I'm playwright, journalist, and the president of the Frank Gilroy fan club, Melanie Tate, and with me is podcast producer and the once blue light disco dance prize winner, Kim Lester. Hi, Kim. All nutbush, baby, all nutbush. <laughs> Kim. It's the episode of a country podcast those of us with a real pull towards silver foxes have been waiting for. It is indeed, Mel, because later on we'll be chatting with the owner of one of the greatest heads of hair in Australia, the man who played one of the most emotionally tortured characters in all of Australian TV history, except for maybe Nina from Offspring, Shane Porteous. (laughs) (laughs) We so loved speaking with him, didn't we, Kim? We absolutely loved him. And in God, he was generous with his time, wasn't he? I think it's definitely one of my favourite interviews that we've done. The eps we're looking at this week are probably the ones where he's tortured the most. Arguably more than when Sophie dies. The Bethany episodes. Yeah, and maybe it's like, it's the opportunity for Shane Porteous to kind of really show his acting chops and, and say, look, I am here and I am good enough to have a daughter who dies of a heroin overdose and then the following year lose a baby in a marriage in the same year. Yeah, I can do it. So, Kim, the Bethany Epps, season six, let the sunshine in one to six. Kim, why did you choose them? Why did we have to watch six episodes of (laughs) torture? Although I must admit it was a great bonding experience for my mum and I. We went away to the coast for a couple of days Mm. and just between us, Kim, and the Blesters and all our Mm -hmm. listeners, usually we can't go away for a couple of days without some argy-bargy you know what I'm saying without some dramas going down yeah but we really had Bethany episodes to connect with to discuss to watch to take six Uh hours out of our weekend together (laughs) I think this we've missed a great opportunity for a guest (laughs) co-host but anyway (laughs) moving on so good though to watch a country sorry we we are moving on but can I just point out my mum's really good to watch a country practice with because everything that was going down she picked up things before I did like, as in she remembered no. what was happening or she picked no, up on, she, she was just, intuitive about the storyline. She lines. was intuitive about the storyline. Like, yeah. something would happen she'd say, ah, th- anyway, I'll, when we get to that part, I'll, I'll tell you okay. that she's very intuitive. Okay. All right. It starts off with Terence going on a camping trip and he wants to get down to the river and the only way down is to go on the property of some out-of-towners, some people who kind of live in the bush and they seem to be living quite a nomadic life. And so he sort of meets them. And then while he's camping, he kind of sights a, a, a girl in the bush and she seems very wild. She's dirty and just there's something odd about that situation. So he asked this family. Anyway, long story short, she is. <laughs> long story yes. short. Yes. Very long story short. She is in there, and I use this phrase loosely, care. Terence is very suspicious. He goes and gets Frank. They turn up. They find this girl chained 
inside a shed, like with an actual padlock chain around her neck. It's all right. It's all right. I'm I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not. We're your friends. Come on. Look, we've got to get this off. We've got to get. We don't know what this is, do you? It is really pretty awful. So, you know, that's episode one. <laughs> is, that, is that even episode? I feel like we're in episode two before that no, even No, that's all pretty much. Gosh. I think that's episode one. And then they, they, so they free her, they get her to the hospital and she's had no contact with the outside world. So all she knows is a very abusive family mm-hmm. and a life among animals in the bush. And she doesn't even live inside the house. It doesn't, it seems as though she lives inside this like shed that's falling over. And so episode one and two were the most harrowing for me. Episode two was Bethany in hospital. And, oh, God, there was an awful scene where the matron and Donna have to shower her. Mm. And they just they just kind of force it on her, you know. And it was really – I don't think that that's how that would be done now, but it was really hard to watch because this girl – and she was a good actor so i'll just fast forward through the next few Mm -hmm. episodes terence then he's granted care he's granted sort of her ward for two months he takes her to the north rocks institute for deaf and blind children so this is an actual school i read a lot about it in my for my history segment but um spoiler alert i'm not going to do it so (laughs) let me just tell you about it now this is an institute that was Built in the 1800s, 1860s, it was first established and it sort of came to its its present day home. It was uh, opened as an institute for both deaf and blind children or two side by side institutes for deaf children and blind children in the 1960s, 1963, I think it was officially opened. And so it's very much run essentially as a specialist, a special school for kids with intellectual disability but also kids who for whatever reason and probably at the time this was not quite the trend could not be integrated into mainstream schools because of their disabilities Um, so Terence takes her there and it's a real education about those sorts of um, I guess the methodology for Mm -hmm. uh, teaching and supporting kids with hearing impairment or deaf kids this is your hearing aid Bethany have a hold of it I found it helps if the child can hold and see the aid first. How successful are they? Well, every case is different. Some have more hearing than others. So that was actually a really interesting few bits and pieces in the show. But the other thing that happens while Terence is in Sydney is that he sees his son and his son is feeling very neglected and jealous of Bethany. And so that's essentially... Uh, that's the episodes in a nutshell. Sorry, that was a really long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a really six episodes. You've got to recap. I just feel like there are so many aspects to these six episodes for us to discuss. One thing that really struck me about this episode, having been a rural reporter all over the country and having grown up in a small country town where there are stories about certain families and people, having lived in Tasmania for a few years where there are all sorts of folklore and sort of legends around people that live outside of the community. I was really interested in the depiction of the rural poor in Mm. this, in these episodes with the Hughes family. They're in this house, this povo house where everything's messy and gross and they've got, you know, rabid dogs and they're tying up 
little girls and they're drinking and stuff Mm. like that. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's hard to know if they're trying to stereotype a community or if this is just the character that they've developed. Yeah. I guess we've all grown up somewhere where the town nearby was Mm. where people like that lived. When I say people like that, I just mean people who are othered, you know, people who you don't understand and who you just judge. And and who have reputations in town. Yeah, who are sort of, you you assume are incestuous Mm. or flea-ridden. You just kind of assume the worst of them. I think sort of rural poor is, is probably one way to put it in that isn't it awful that we jump to these kinds of conclusions around people just because they don't have an income yeah. or don't don't yeah. have means to stay to to maintain the hygiene standards that we've you know decided are necessary yeah. to function in a society. Therefore, it's very easy for them to be the ultimate villains. Like the mm. the the Mister Hughes in this could not be a worse villain. He even he's yeah. played by Rob Steele. He even has like disgusting, scary teeth. He has, yeah. you know, he's always slugging away at one of those old, it's funny, uh, those old sherry, big sherry, do you remember yeah. those old, old wine bottle, bottles that have been oh, replaced by the Oh, I just thought it was moonshine. Oh, yeah. No, we used to sell them at our shop. Like they were ah. always kind of the um, the signifier if somebody had a real problem with alcohol because they were right. these huge, big, you know, the bottles that, that are in there, but yeah. they were very, very cheap. Yeah. Usually filled with sherry or something like that. Mum assures mm. me they don't have them now. It's just goons. They've just got cask. (laughs) Yeah, it's just cask wine now. Um, What did you think of Mrs. Hughes, the the portrayal of Mrs. Hughes? Like there was a lot of hand pointing at her. How could you let this happen? How could, you know, I don't know about that. I felt she was a victim as well. Oh, I definitely felt she was a victim as well. I think in a country practice, and I've sort of said this before, there's – there's the commentary of the cast and then there's the overall commentary that the show is making. And I felt that the commentary of the cast was how could you do this? But the overall commentary of the show I still felt was this woman is a victim too. She's a victim of abuse. She can't speak when the husband's around. He speaks for her. And they made it clear that if you try and get her alone, you might actually be able to get Mm. some answers and that's what happened was when um i can't remember if it was terence or frank were alone with her they finally found out who bethany was and how she was related to them and she uh you know she didn't want bethany back because she said this is going to get us in trouble again why did you bring her back why did you Mm. do this and probably yeah partly that was because they'd get in trouble but also because she didn't want to see that abuse continue as well and she was helpless because you know, she herself was very much a slave to her addiction, but, um, you know, just just not in a position to really do anything to save the girl. I don't want to get too much into the abuse because it is actually really, really horrible. It, yeah, it's really it horrible. And But I would like to ask you a question, Kim, about, mm. I mean, I think by about episode five or six, somehow, so Bethany runs away from Terence. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's scared. She runs away from Terence and she runs back by accident into her grandfather, Mr. Hughes, who takes her yes. back and chains her up again. They find her. It's this very emotional scene for poor old, poor old Terence when he sees her chained up again. I mean, it's just horrific. Yeah, he's broken. He's bro- he is. He's broken. He, he, mm. he completely breaks. But then we go to a scene a few minutes later. Why do they leave her chained up in the shed? This yeah. is what I can't. So, so Terence and the social worker go back to the Hughes house. The Hughes have been carted off by the coppers yes. 
by Frank. Why? Tens of minutes, if not hours, have passed and Bethany remains <laughs> chained minutes. in the shed. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, the social worker and Terence have gone back to have a tea or a glass of that prime sherry from the I big think- <laughs> bottle to calm down. Because Terence has turned to the booze. Yeah. Um, I was horrified by that horrified. and I could not Me work too. it out. I My only sort of explanation of it was that maybe they thought she was too scared to trust anybody and so no one could get close enough to her to take the chain off her neck. And maybe they thought if they released the other end of the chain, she would just run again. And so they felt that the most gentle thing to do was just to wait and let her let her calm down. But it was really awful to think that you would mm. leave her on that chain for even a second longer. Oh, than it was she had horrible. I wonder, you know, back in the day in the eighties, whether they just didn't have sedatives. That was all I could think of the whole time when she was having her or whether just for drama's sake, like that shower scene you were talking about, when you say it'd be a lot easier now, it'd be a lot easier because they'd sedate the little girl now. I mean, I don't know. I really, I don't know enough about medications to know whether they would sedate a little girl for that situation. A little little girl who had come out of the bush. Um. I would have thought that they'd just not shower her until, like, they would, wouldn't put such an emphasis on showering her unless it really needed to happen. But do you know, something just occurred to me. Mm. So it's interesting that at the beginning of the, ser- of the show, of this arc, this mm-hmm. six-episode arc, they essentially tortured her in order to get her clean. So she didn't fit into their world. She didn't understand their world. But instead of waiting and making it calm and giving her an opportunity to trust them. They just forced her into their world by showering her. And this was, you know, it it wasn't, they wouldn't have seen this. I'm talking about Maggie and um, Donna. They wouldn't have seen this as abusive, but it, God, it looked abusive. Like the way that it was played out looked really abusive. And that to me was a real contrast to what they did in the last episode where they didn't force her off the chain. They probably would have had to kind of, secure her and be quite forceful because of how upset she was by what had happened. And so maybe that's part of it is just this journey that they'd been on and that the audience had been on that we went from this situation where they were forcing her into situations because it was the best thing for her to just calmly waiting for her to get there on her own. I I, I feel like you're being very generous towards (laughs) there, Kim. (laughs) I do. I, I, I feel like you're being very, very generous. I think that they, yeah. I don't know if they they would have thought it out that, I mean, I'm sure they did think it out very carefully, but really yeah. I think she was left alone with the chain around her neck so that we could have that moment where she plays the music. I'm, I mean, yeah, sure. It is. <laughs> it's probably more likely to be. It. And it's connected again. But, you know, there was a beautiful moment with Donna and Donna's caring. I thought of mm. Terence and Donna really took, to heart Bethany's plight and there's this Mm. beautiful scene where Donna gives her some chocolate and says wow how lucky are you you're about to start chocolate for the first time it was a really beautiful moment yeah yeah we've got to talk about Terence what are your thoughts and feelings on Dr. T's growing love and obsession for Bethany during this season Mm. this this season it is basically a season it would be a season today in television at six episodes I know yeah um to me it spoke to the fact that he hadn't been there for his own kids. And that sounds very judgmental, 
but he lives miles away, he, you know, a day's drive away from mm. his uh, younger son. And this would have been the case with his two surviving children, that they wouldn't have grown up with him nearby. This is the situation that lots and lots of parents go through. And I'm not trying to judge that situation in any way. I think, though, that the story that they were trying to tell was Terence grappling with the guilt of not having been around his kids, his own children as they grew up, and being given this opportunity to almost right that wrong mm. through Bethany, through his care for Bethany, which became quite, you know, not not necessarily the best thing even for her, mm. really. Like, he became very obsessed with the idea that she needed him. And everybody else was saying, are you sure about that? Or is it that you need her? Yeah, there's a lot of that going on, wasn't there? Mm. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting the way they were showing him to be a kind of a deadbeat dad. Like mm. one of the things about Terence, like you said before, you know, you're not judging parents that are away from their children for whatever reasons. I mean, Terence actually doesn't really have a reason to be away from his children. I mean, he's got the financial means to be near them. He's got the professional, you know, qualifications to have a job near them. We discover, so we discover, if you're really listening carefully, that this is probably the beginning of Sophie's drug addiction in these episodes because Sophie's mother has gone to India to rescue Sophie from something. Yeah. He doesn't know about that. He doesn't know Sophie's in India. He doesn't know that his ex-wife has gone over there. His poor son, who's doing all these things to try and impress him, is just Mm. kind of left alone. And yet he's still... He still can't understand or get the way that he's focusing in on Bethany, how hurtful Mm. that is for his son, who's been so completely neglected by him. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's all deliberate writing, don't you? Absolutely. And I think it's really good writing too. I actually think that 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 a guy like Terrence would struggle to see, you know, he sees the the care for others, but he doesn't necessarily see. Yeah. How much he's hurting the people closest to him. I think that's a real character trait that mm. that carries through. It carries right through the Sophie episodes and the and the Alex leaving episodes. Yeah. I've definitely seen that in him. I think Terence's obsession with Bethany was a bit much. Now, interestingly, what my mum picked up way before any of the town busybodies did is mum kept saying he shouldn't be doing that. He's a single man with a young woman in his house. Really. Not he shouldn't be doing that, but she's like, people are going to start ah. talking. And I, I said, it's Terrence though, mum. And it's the 1980s. Like, everyone loves Terrence. No one's going to be suspicious of him. It's the 1980s. And then sure yeah. enough, part of the storyline yeah. becomes this, you know, gossiping woman who is quite the hypocrite starts to raise questions about why Terrence might want a young teenager in the house. So that was an interesting storyline. What it did say to me, though, about Terrence is that he's not as cluey sort of to what a community might expect of a man as he should be. Yeah. And also the the gossipy woman that is made to be a baddie in these episodes for accusing mm. Terence. I actually think fair play to her. Like so if she thought that she was seeing something dodgy going on, of course she should have reported that. And she did think that something dodgy was going on. Yeah, but she she had no grounds for it. That's the thing. Like her only reason for thinking something dodgy was going on was because she was in his care. That's not good for anybody. That's not good for the the system that relies on people reporting actual real cases. I guess it's an assumption that's based on a misunderstanding of what a victim of abuse looks like as well. 
It's also an assumption made on dot, dot, dot men. Yeah. i tell you what I wanted after this, Kim. Yeah, yeah. What did you want after this? I wanted to go and watch some wedding episodes. I just needed yeah. to chill out. Or like a silly a silly episode. Like there's one that I've only seen half of, but Esme thinks there's a ghost in the bush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just needed something like that. We needed we needed some real Bob and Cookie shenanigans yeah, after this episode. Yeah, it's just full on. Although there's some good – can I just point out as a little PS, there are some oh. really good Bob and Cookie shenanigans in one of the episodes where – Bob makes a bet with Cookie. Oh, that's right. To not drink. <laughs> and suddenly the whole town doesn't drink. And mm. the bet is if he can last a week without booze, Cookie will run to Burrigan in his birthday suit. Yep. And Bob wins. No one's dr- like Cookie is just trying to hock booze any way he can throughout the whole episode because no one, everyone's, they've gone dry in solidarity with Bob. That's a great storyline. It was a good storyline. Yeah, yeah. It was good. And then when Bob actually won and they sort of, all the guys start going da 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 da. Sid Halen just starts stripping. I was a bit nervous. I was very nervous for Alex. Oh, speaking of being nervous for Alex, one more thing yeah. I need to talk to you about. Oh, yeah. At some point, Terence realizes that he's going to lose Bethany, and as Terence tends to do, he drinks to deal with his feelings. Interesting contrast between the rural poor drinkers and the wealthy white doctor drinker anyway. Um, (laughs) But he gets very drunk and Alex turns up and Terence has this big drunken monologue about all of his failings and she's just standing there. And at this point, Alex has known him for about three months and she really wants to be made a partner in the practice and her contract is up and she has no idea if she's got a job the next day. And really all she's doing is filling in for this guy who's gone AWOL over this one patient. And then he's off his face monologuing at her and the look on her face. Haven't you been in that situation where you've had that look on your face? Yes. With with somebody who is superior to you unloading something that you don't want to hear. Lonely, Alex. I don't have a family anymore. I love to play cricket, but uh, people don't ask me to be on their cricket team. And I, I, I love to go sailing, but I can't do that here, of course. I love to, to dance, but people stare at me if I do. Do you know why? And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I'm a doctor. You know, I sort of feel a bit mixed about how I feel about Terence in that because I feel like he's showing great vulnerability in it. Mm. Yet at the same time, I just think, mate, sort your life out. Like, <laughs> go and dance at a bloody wedding. Who cares? No one's looking at you thinking that guy can't dance because he's the doctor. You know, I just feel like Terence, just go live your life a bit more. Stop worrying about what everybody's thinking, boomer. Yeah. Boomers love to worry about what people think about them. He definitely does show a lot of vulnerability in that scene. And mm. and so is anyone when they when they have that moment where there are a few drinks uh, in. When you're the other person in that, in that moment and you just don't know where to look. I really just felt Alex's every fiber in that moment. The awkwardness. But it is kind of like like his vulnerability is still decent vulnerability, isn't it? It's not sort of if she looked back on that night, she'd think he was heartbroken about something really important. 
Yeah. You know, yeah, like it, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be looking back going, oh, what a dick, like sort your life out. No. You'd be like, Not what at a all. deeply kind feeling man, you know? Mm. Oh, that gray hair. I love it so much. That's <laughs> a little, <laughs> what she'd be doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was some six episodes, Kim. Shall we move on to find out what was going on in the world? Let's do it. So, Kim, what was going on in Australia in 1986 when Bethany's part one, part two, part three, part four, part five, part six went to air? (laughs) So, they went to air (laughs) over three weeks from the 3rd of August and quite a few things happened in 1986 up to August. Um, On the 2nd of February, nurse Anita Cobby was abducted. Robbed, raped, and murdered by John oh. Travers, mm. Michael Murdoch, and Leslie, Gary, and Michael Murphy at Prospect in Sydney. I didn't realise that was five men. That's awful. It's, it's just- a horrible story. And we've. my mother is a recurring theme throughout this entire podcast mm. day, it occurs to me. My mother, I swear to God, Kim, is Australia's foremost expert in this case. Oh, really? Knows everything about it. Yeah, yeah, because she, she knew uh, Anita Cobby's parents oh. and lived in the area like is from the area where these men were from yeah and it's just the most horrific horrific case yeah i I like i'm sure you've read about it this afternoon but it's completely Mm. horrific it's awful yeah i mean i really i didn't read too much about it just because really there's only so much abuse you can look into in one day um they've actually they're all sentenced to life in jail without parole ever yeah that's right yeah On the 3rd of March, the Australia Act came into effect at 4 p.m., 1600 Australian Eastern Standard Time. uh, What's the Australia Australia Act? I'm so scared of what the Australia Act is, but I kind of feel not as scared knowing that Bob Hawke was the Prime Minister Yeah, no, it's not like the smart card or anything like that. Um, You just just know the Australia Act, if it was in the John Howard years, would be like some horrific... it'll be... Like who... (laughs) Yeah, it'd be, it'd be like lock up everybody Everyone who's not from Australia. Everyone must have sausages yeah. on Australia Day. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually um, granting Australia legal independence from the United Kingdom by removing the power of the Parliament of the United Kingdom to legislate with effect in Australia and its states and territories. So Good it stuff. was the beginning of a step that we never really took towards mm-hmm. becoming a republic. On the 9th of August, again, horrible story, Sydney schoolgirl Samantha Knight disappeared in Bondi in Sydney. God, I remember that. Yeah. Do you remember that happening? I remember her picture on the news. Kim, you know what I remember from that time is around, this is the weirdest thing to remember, but around that time on Agro's Cartoon Connection, there was a painting that was done by somebody called Samantha Knight, like age oh. eight or something. And I was like, she's trying to tell you that that's oh. where she is, you know, because it was so. Yeah, that um, is a weird coincidence. Yeah, it was such a, but I, I mean, I, I might have imagined all of that, yeah. you know, but it was such a, it was so present in our minds in New South Wales, yeah, like that we, you know, it was such a huge story. It, you know, people who were six a few years ago will will sort of talk about William Tyrrell in this same way. Yeah, right. Um, on the 20th of January, Neighbours made its debut on Network 10. I thought Neighbours was 1985, but it was 1986, apparently. Wow. It came to dominate the 7pm weeknight time slot and Melanie, Melanie Tate. <laughs> Very Can exciting. you guess Excited. which film yes. was released on the 30th of April, 1986? 
Yes, I can. Because I think I saw it seven <laughs> times at the cinema. Yes. Ooh. It was, that's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. Was it? Yeah. Yep. Crocodile yeah. Dundee. That's not a knife. This is a what? knife. Where was it? Where was it actually released? Like, does um, it shape up that I could have seen it seven times at I, the cinema? Which I is- was wondering because you've told me this, and I, this afternoon yeah. when I saw the thirtieth of April, nineteen eighty-six. So you are just over six now. Yeah, yeah, about six and so a month. I, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder though whether I imagine when I imagine it is that it's a Christmas holidays oh, and that yeah. it's like. Someone's birthday, someone's birthday, someone else, someone else, someone else, someone else mm-hmm. goes. But if it's in April, it's not Christmas. Oh, excuse me. It's not Christmas holidays. Maybe it's Easter holidays or maybe because back in the good old days, hit films played for six months yeah. in the cinema. Yeah. So you could go and see it a million times. But maybe. <laughs> I don't know whether that's another thing I've made up, like the Samantha Knight picture. 1986 <laughs> was a very – I think 1986 might be the first year I have formed memories you know, do you have me- what you know? Like that's obviously. I have very memories. few memories before we moved to Rockhampton, so that was nineteen eighty seven. Nineteen eighty seven. I think I formed most of my memories then, and it's funny because I have a five year old, and I just thinking about the way that she plays now, and I think I wonder if she's forming memories there, or is this just like she'll she'll forget all about this tomorrow? Yeah, that you can say whatever you like now. Yeah, you can, you can still get away with. <laughs> Whatever kind of parenting you want for yep. the next year or so. Totally. <laughs> anyway, so the scheduling masters of a country practice, God, they were spot on the money because from the 11th to the 14th of August, 1986, right in the middle of this three-week arc on a country practice, the sixth International Congress on Child Abuse and Neglect was held in Sydney. How is that? I'm sure it wasn't a coincidence. Well, yeah, I was thinking like, I think that they knew, I saw an article from about May. So let's just assume it was announced in May that this Congress was going to happen. So I wonder if the writers were looking ahead and saying, okay, so this is going to be big. Maybe we should aim to have a child abuse storyline in this week. Or maybe the Congress, like maybe the organization got in touch with the country practice and said, you should be doing a child abuse storyline and this is the date to release it. The Congress was the meeting of the International Society for the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect, which is an organisation established in 1977, following the first International Congress a year earlier. ISPCAN, which is the acronym of International Society for Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect. very memorable. ISPCAN. ISPCAN's first president was C. Henry Kemper. I'm going to go with Kemper. K-E-M-P-E, German name. Anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, C. Henry Kemper, the American pediatrician recognized as the first in the medical community to identify and recognize child abuse. So in uh, Kemper and Brant F. Steele published the 1962 paper, The Battered Child Syndrome, which was all about identifying injuries that appear in children that mm, sort of Uh, unexplained or ongoing or untreated and and looking at statistics in how many, um, like what the greatest cause of disability and death is among children under three. The paper triggered the second wave of the child rescue movement and led to a raft of research and legislation around prevention of child abuse in the Western world, including Australia. 
The first wave of the child rescue movement dates right back to the 19th century. Um, so in the 1870s, the case of 10-year-old Mary Ellen McCormick is considered the catalyst for the creation of laws to protect children from maltreatment by caregivers. So this girl was the victim of ongoing physical abuse by her adoptive mother in New York, and there were no laws to protect children from cruelty. So the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was approached to assist. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it took the case to court on the basis that Mary Ellen was a human animal and therefore entitled to protection comparable to that given to animals. Mary Ellen was placed in an orphanage and her caregiver was jailed. So let's go back to the future of 1986, where the Sixth International Congress on Child Abuse and Neglect is being held in Australia. One of the delegates was Anne Cohn from the US National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse. She said in 1976 that in the US, there were 80,000 reports of child abuse. And a decade later, in 1985, there were 2 million reports. And so this is not Again, this is not about an increase in child abuse. This is about people suddenly becoming aware because of this second wave, slowly sort of coming out of the medical community and into the public awareness. And it took about 20 years. This is people becoming aware and starting to report incidences of child abuse. Alison Davis, the coordinator of the Child Abuse Conference, said it was clear that Australia was not doing enough about the problem. The United States has brought in a commitment to reduce child abuse by 20% by 1990, and I think they will get there. We're not dealing nearly enough in the way of prevention. It's no good just having public awareness of the problem. We need to have public facilities so that people know there is help available. So publicity around the conference, Mel, it coincided with one of the worst weeks of child abuse related arrests in New South Wales history. 13 Mm. people were charged within five days in completely different situations. So not 13 people involved in one case. Um, And the offences range from neglect to sexual assault. Here's an article from The Age after the conference. Publicity about the extent of child abuse in Australia has shocked many people and highlighted serious flaws in the capacity of judicial and welfare systems to deal with the problem. Many of the 1,600 delegates at the International Congress on Child Abuse and Neglect in Sydney last week said Australia lagged far behind the United States and Britain in modifying deeply entrenched court and other procedures to the special needs of physically, sexually and emotionally abused children. Speakers made the point that while the professions discovered quote-unquote, discovered child abuse about 20 years ago, the community and politicians had become aware of it only in the past five years. And since then, the number of reported cases had increased by a staggering degree. So the point being that it's the public awareness of child abuse. It's really only just starting to develop in the last five years Mm -hmm. up to this point, which is really interesting when you think about... I mean, we've come off the back of a Royal Commission into institutional abuse and one of the things that was talked a lot about then also was the need for some kind of royal commission or investigation or action to be taken on familial abuse as well but this is just only 30 odd years ago and people were barely aware that it was a crime you know that it was happening but finally mel 
A country practice was not the only pop culture phenomenon using its prominent voice to raise awareness of the child abuse issue. Among the Sydney Morning Herald's two-page spread on child abuse, which followed the conference, I found this article. Spider-Man to the rescue. A special Spider-Man comic has been produced to tell children they can say no to adults who interfere with them. In the story, Spider-Man admits he was molested as a child and helps a young boy who was molested by his babysitter realise that telling his parents about it is the right thing to do. Another story in the comic deals with incest. A young girl's mother won't believe her when she says her father sexually interfered with her. A group of young superheroes help her contact the authorities. The Marvel comic was produced in cooperation with the National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse and its executive director, Anne Cohn, who I mentioned before, says the publication was a huge success. God, that is so full on. Yes. Can you imagine reading that comic to your child? It's so it's so out there. Yeah. We're definitely doing wedding episodes. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Right, Mel, who are you taking out of the vault of Australia's film and TV history today. So here's the thing, Kim. These episodes, they're six episodes long. And when we were talking about uh, the episode earlier on, I was like, oh, my gosh, John Hamblin from Play School plays the principal of the school yeah. at the beginning that Bethany gets taken to. And by the time I got to preparing this, I had completely forgotten about that. Yeah. He was who I was going to do. <laughs> but I'm sure he'll appear some other time in a country practice again so we can talk about him again. But in this episode, just a couple of quick quick ones. Granddaddy Hughes, Mr. Hughes, mm. is played by a guy called Rob Steele, who's an Australian actor with a face that will be immediately recognisable. Yeah. He's had a knack for being in iconic Australian films. He was in Newsfront, Muriel's Wedding, Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, Breaker Morant. Among them, he's also appeared on Matlock, GP, Brides of Christ, Home and Away, everything. <laughs> the woman who plays his wife, Robin Gurney, is another well-known face. And she was a series regular on number 96 and also appeared on Matlock, Rafferty's Rules, Neighbours, Home and Away, etc. I've got an interesting personal connection one that mm. I want to share with you. So, Rosalind Gentle, she plays the social worker Amy. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got a bit of a personal history with her, Kim. That might have brought us to this point right now, you and I doing this podcast. Really? So Yes. So, Rosalind Gentle is a very busy actress. And from what I can see, she still lives in the US. And her most recent credits are Bombshell, that Nicole Kidman movie, oh. where she played an uncredited role as the Australian assistant of Rupert Murdoch. Oh. And American Crime Story. You know those, I think she was in the OJ one. Right. My connection with her is that... Rosalind Gentle is one of 10 gentle kids. There are 10 of them, 10 of them. And I think a few of them are actors. And her youngest brother, I think, is a guy called Billy, who was in my first play, The Vegemite Tales. Uh And The Vegemite Tales was actually based on Billy's house because Billy was my only friend when I moved to London. And it never would have happened. And I just feel like my whole life comes from The Vegemite Tales, my whole career, my whole life. (laughs) Yeah. So we wouldn't be sitting here now if it hadn't been for Billy because I would never have gone to his house and written the play and et cetera. Anyway, that's that's, Roz. You can cut that out if you like. I love that. No, no, no. I love that. (laughs) The person I want us to look at today, though, Kim, is the director of the first two episodes, Lee Spence. He Mm -hmm. directed two of the six of these marathon eps. 
and he just sounds like the most brilliant guy. You know how every now and again when we're looking at this this segment, we just meet these people we wish were still here that we could hang out with because they're so magical. And Lee Spence sounds like one of these magical people. Most of the um, info about Lee Spencer's life comes from one of the most joyous obituaries I think I've ever re- read. It was written by the TV writer and historian Andrew Mikado. It was a full page in the Sydney Morning Herald on a Saturday, which was oh, apparently wow. a bit of a big deal back in the day. Yeah. So Lee Spence was born in Sydney and his dad was a pro golfer, Kim. Huh. At the age of 20, he got an apprenticeship with the ABC as a stagehand, set builder, etc. And he progressed uh, from there to be a producer and a director. However, Kim, as many of the greats do, Kim, he thought there was a life outside the ABC and he left to start up his own fashion business. He did that for a few years and then he left to train as a chef. Like, seriously, this guy's amazing. Yeah. Then the call of the publicly funded broadcaster was just so much stronger than souffles and rissoles that he was back at the ABC by the time he was 27. Kim, you can hear that refrain, can't you? Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. (laughs) I remember when (laughs) I left and everyone said, you'll be back. You'll be back. I was like, no, I really don't think I will. And then 18 months later, I was back. (laughs) Yeah. How many times have you left the ABC? I feel like I've left about 800 times and come back in 801 times. I've left at least two, two official (laughs) times. Two official times, right. Yeah, I've left two official times too. But both of us, we just keep like probably why the time this goes to where, well, we we both are doing stuff with the ABC at the moment. (laughs) But yeah, every time. So I think we have a kinship with Lee Spence because of this. Yes. So he took a leave of absence from the ABC, bless him, to get some more work experience abroad. And he found himself in London where he worked on a bunch of shows that are still remembered as being legendary today, Kim. The Thunderbirds, Top of the Pops, This Week in Britain were just among them. When he came back to Australia, the ABC made up a job for him that saw him work on all sorts of... I see you laugh at that. That happens too. (laughs) Never happens to me though. (laughs) I don't think it's happened to me. I did have somebody once make up a job for me, but I couldn't... I didn't want to do it. Oh, okay. So nobody's made up one Uh for me that I actually want to do. But bless, I, I would do that job now. You know what I'm saying in this climate? Anyway, if that manager knows who they are. If they listen to the podcast, I'm, I'm here. Um, <laughs> when, so he came back to Australia. He got this job at the ABC again. And he was working on all sorts of shows like Mr. Squiggle in its infancy. <gasps> I love And Mr. also Squiggle. music specials with people like Cleo Lane and Kamal, who I wonder if he ever did a guestie on... ACP. Oh, it just seems so likely. Inevitable. So inevitable. So Lee Spence then left the ABC again to start his own production company and became direct and started directing drama on TV. And Kim, this guy was just so beloved. He directed on The Restless Years, on Prisoner, or for our international listeners, Prisoner Cell Block H. Um, and here's a really lovely anecdote from Andrew Mikado's obituary. Andrew says he loved working with the predominantly female cast of Prisoner and famously only lost his temper once on the day of the Logies telecast. As the afternoon wore on, he became aware that his prisoners were secretly glamming themselves up for the big night ahead. So he had to sternly remind them that the Wentworth Detention Centre was a makeup free zone. (laughs) 
<laughs> Lee Spence then went on to our beloved ACP, which IMDb said he directed 102 episodes of, which probably means he directed something like 400 yeah. and 70. <laughs> yeah. Um, here again is a lovely part of Andrew's obituary alluding to Lee's time on ACP. Spencer's next long-running gig was another hugely popular television series, A Country Practice. Lorraine Desmond, who played Shirley Gilroy, says he was her very, very, very favourite director and remembers him as always being a joy to work with. Years later, he was still protective of her, stepping in to be her stunt double when she appeared on Home and Away. (laughs) You'll love this. You're going to love this, Kim. The show had wanted her to be hoisted into the air to simulate a hot air balloon takeoff, but Spence refused to let her do it. And donning her hat, her scarf and her earrings, he went up in the crane instead. <laughs> I love Isn't the thought that they were going to get close enough they'd see the earrings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Such a champ. When a country practice took uh, to the high seas for a a two-part adventure called Ships in the Night, guest star Maggie Dents, which we've got to note because this sounds great, guest star Maggie Dents remembers Spencer's wicked sense of humour in dealing with the cruise ship's paying passengers and the increasingly rough seas. Just like Desmond, Dents remembers the extra attention that Spence would pay to his actors by talking through scenes beforehand and suggesting on-set lighting and subtle body angles that would show everyone looking their best, <laughs> which is just the sort of director I'm sure all actors want, Kim, yes. and why he was so popular with everybody. Yeah. So if you if you look over his IMDb, you'll see that he directed 16 episodes of E Street, over 100 episodes of Home and Away, a couple of Hey Dad, Rafferty's Rules and All Saints. When he retired to his house on Sydney's Northern Beaches from Home and Away, the cast and crew made him a Logie for Australia's Best Love Director. He was, by all accounts, a delightful man and a friend to many. When I contacted Andrew Mercado to thank him for all this info, Andrew said he was a wonderful man whose obit it was an honour to write. And Andrew also said this, which I thought was a really lovely um, touch to what kind of a life, um, what kind of a person Lee Spence was. Andrew said, when I moved house, he brought a bunch of cuttings from his garden and those plants are still here in pots everywhere. Um, We'll link to Andrew's brilliant obit of Lee Spence in our show notes so you can learn even more about this gorgeous man. Doesn't he sound gorgeous? Yeah, he does. He sounds great. Yeah. I really wish that he was still here for us to talk with. Mm. He sounds like, you know, we've got – this is our last episode of this series – but our first episode of next series is with James Davin, who's yes. the creator of A Country Practice. I feel like Lee Spence and James Davin would have really hit it off, yeah. don't you think? Like, yeah. Just they're both they they both just seem like joyous. allies for their staff, for the people that they work with. Absolutely, and just upbeat, positive men. Yeah. You know, so lovely. So that's today's person that we're grabbing out of the vault, Lee Spence, the director. Fantastic. So, Kim, it's time to hear from one of the most iconic voices on Australian TV, a man who we've reduced to a sex symbol on this podcast, but is actually so, so, so much more. Not only did Shane Porteous play Dr. Terence Elliott for over a decade, but he's also a man of big and wide spanning talents. He's an Augie Award winning screenwriter for his work on Neighbours. He's a cartoonist and a visual artist, and somehow, Kim, in spite of all your objectification (laughs) of his gradually silvering hair on a country practice, he's agreed to speak with us. Um, (laughs) 
I see how this is going to go now, don't I? I see where this collaboration <laughs> is going to get me into some trouble, Mel. Yes, that is so gracious of him to be prepared to talk to me, the sex pest that I am. <laughs> Pod friends, here he is, Shane Porteous. Shane Porteous. I used to be Dr. Terence Elliott on a country practice in the 1980s and early 1990s. You'd, you'd done a lot of television and film and theatre beforehand. The script itself, when you read it to begin with, did you know it was going to be something special? I, I had a feeling that it was going to last. I think it was just coming at the right time when uh, all the kinds of shows that were on at the time were the very melodramatic kinds mm-hmm. of shows. They were imitating Dallas and those sorts of shows. And uh, there hadn't been a sort of a, a down-to-earth Australian kind of show for a while. And uh, once the scripts started coming out all the time, we realised just how much care they were taking with the scripts. How involved were you in the development of Terence as a character over the years? Mostly it came from the writers. And they invited input from the cast. And at one stage, I remember after Terence had gone through his first few wives and, um, <laughs> um, and they sort of didn't want to build in a permanent female relationship there, I, my suggestion they took up was that Terence would frequently go up to Burrigan, which was the, the big town, was the rural city mm-hmm. nearby, which was uh, 20 minutes away or two hours away, depending on what the plot needed. But uh, <laughs> he would, uh, Terence would, I said, suggested that he would go up there to do research. <laughs> and everybody knew that, in fact, what he was up there was, you know. Uh, <laughs> to meet a lady friend. Yeah, making lady, yeah, meeting lady friends. <laughs> um, how did John Handlon come to Wandon Valley and a country practice? Towards the end, about in the late 80s, uh, when I thinking, yes, I'm going to be typecast after this and I you know, still have kids going through uni and I still have to eat. What I would have liked to have done actually was to direct, to learn to direct, but to you know, practice directing, you have to have a whole crew and a cast. To practice writing, all you need is a typewriter. Then I thought, well, I know how the show works. I know and, and the reasonably good with dialogue so I did a submission as writers were always invited to do which was to write 10 or 15 scenes and then send it in and they would sort of assess that and because I didn't want them to be any influence or uh, bias either way I mean it could they could have said no I'm sorry we <laughs> we need you to just concentrate on the on the acting because if you were uh, you know, if you become, if you start to think you're a good writer, you might resign from the show and, and go <laughs> trying writing for something else. Or on the other hand, they could have been biased, saying, "Oh gosh, yes, we want to keep, we better keep him happy. We'll sort of accept the thing." So, uh, in connivance with uh, the late Bill Searle, who was my yeah. friend and uh, uh, he was the uh, uh, script editor uh, at the time, I uh, put my submission in under the name of of John Hanlon. And, they, and so it went through all the processes of uh, James Davin looking looking at it. And uh, he said, yes, 
And, and so, but then I had to sort of you know, come out of the closet, as it were, um, <laughs> because, you know, you've got to go into script meetings to, mm. to plot the, the things. But uh, they went along with that, and I eventually ended up writing six episodes. Uh, and that eventually did make my other career later on afterwards. So, so we, we got the kids through uni and, <laughs> and we ate <laughs> regularly. Did you enjoy one more than the other, acting or writing? Usually just enjoyed what I was doing at the time. It was nice to have the change, uh, to, to go into the writing. And, and for me, at first, of course, there was a whole lot of learning going on. You know, it was a whole new sort of thing. And, and, and the excitement of, of actually learning the, to do it and getting things uh, wrong and corrected and then right. And then, uh, and, but then you know, getting back to the, uh, to, acting again, uh, but I enjoyed both. Is there anything you would have liked to have been different about Terence? <sighs> it would have been a lot of fun to play if, he, if he'd had a, a darker side. <laughs> some, some really, really awful hidden, hidden side way back somewhere. That would have just me being bored rather. <laughs> but they kind of allude to – it's interesting you say that, though, because throughout the Sophie episodes and also in those first few episodes, there's a lot of alluding to his past as an alcoholic. So there was kind of an opening for that in a way, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 he wasn't an alcoholic, just a drunk. Um, right. And it, yeah. <laughs> um, as, yes, that was – and it was a slightly confused message about – his drunkenness uh, in the past uh, caused the death of his son. What about the show itself? Is there anything you think the show itself could have done better that it perhaps didn't address, or that that it could have it could have been better at in representing, or the like? I don't know. I, it was never. I don't think anybody ever expected it to be. Uh, a life-changing sort of revolutionary kind of uh, left-wing charge into the future. Entertainment was its main goal, and that that's that was quite clear. Um, but we it it was gently left of centre, I think. Mm. Uh, I hope. Even when Bob Hawke came on as a guest uh, actor playing Bob Hawke. Um, <laughs> right at the end, I think Terence had a little thing, you know, where they said, "Oh, thank God, Bob Hawke stopped the whatever it was, the road going through, or something." You know. and, uh, and Terence had a little line or something about saying, "Yeah, but he's a politician still, so it's up to us, up to the people, to actually uh, make things happen." Uh, we knew the show was really buzzing when, almost coincidentally. It would, would go to air when some other issue had just accidentally come up. There was sort of a zeitgeist kind of thing, mm. but, which was the it was predated because the, the episodes were written twelve weeks before they actually got, went to air. But uh, but that that happened a lot. Yeah, uh, you know, quite sort of coincidentally uh, that that we were playing the the situations were happening in the news currently. I watched this last weekend and I, I just spent the whole week just occasionally thinking of it and remembering <laughs> it was an episode called Mates and it was about a couple, uh, two men who were, everybody in the town assumed were brothers. This was from season two. And they assumed that they were brothers. They were older men who lived together and the town adored them and adored their contribution to the town. And then 
it became apparent that they weren't actually brothers and most likely they were a gay couple. And, I mean, it ended so tragically. Um, but I thought this is... This, this would be something that would have made so many people uncomfortable at the time, but would have been such an important episode for, for men in their, and, and even women in their situation. And I thought it was handled really well for 1982, which is when it went to air. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I do remember uh, we, we, there was a lot of pressure from the writers on the producer uh, and producers about in, including uh, people of colour in, mm. uh, in, in the episodes. And the research coming back from um, Tunnel 7 and uh, it was the audience, your target audi- audience, the one who is spending, the, has the money to spend, doesn't want to know about mm. some of those. I th- there was subtle pressure not to, uh, to have, you know, th- 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 to have difficult um, uh Diversity issues. Mm. So there was there was was pressure uh, not not to make it too uh, multicultural and uh, and uh, genre diverse and, and and gender diverse. You know. Isn't that underestimating the audience a bit when you think about the things and the medical issues and the issues that that a country practice did? Like in the Sophie episodes, for example, I nearly fell off my chair when Dr. Terence is talking about how drugs should be legalised. You know, that would have been revolutionary for a 1980s. Like my, I think of my mother, who is still very conservative, who still wouldn't quite get her head around that if she was watching it today. She was watching that with her kids every week, hearing stuff like that. So yeah. the audience, and and not not watching and thinking, well, Dr. Terrence thinks drugs should be legalised. I'm not watching <laughs> this anymore. That didn't, the audience was probably being underestimated. Oh, I, I, I'm absolutely certain. I'm absolutely certain. Uh, but uh, the advert Advertisers on television are mm. sort of very nervous about their, and they have specific markets that they're aiming at to, I guess, and some of them would have been conservative, uh, like my parents, as, as well as your parents, so even a generation uh, further back as well. I always think that, that Terence was not a member of the AMA, who was a member of the Doctors' Reform Society. <laughs> the exact same thing when and he definitely would have been part of the skeptics as well I, I would imagine oh yeah yes you know for somebody that was in Roseville before Wandon Valley and by all appearances was very conservative he was constantly saying things or doing things that would suggest he wasn't yeah Terence was uh, had the innate arrogance uh, of by the, the fact that he was a doctor and did all that training and he knew better than anybody else and uh, I mean, the, the the story room just you know called him the God Doctor the whole time. <laughs> but, but there was, but I wanted, and I, I was very keen to have that that there was a certain arrogance that said you know that what I think and feel is right. That was an important part of of his character. I think it was a quiet arrogance. We haven't asked you about the David Bowie story. Shane Potties, what is the true story about Iggy Pop and David Bowie and their love of a country practice? Uh, well, I didn't know about Iggy Pop until this, this year when I saw it was, it was actually repeated by Iggy Pop. Uh, that at the time of the, and I can't remember what year it was, the Glass Spider tour, David uh, and his family and entourage were living in Switzerland at the time and uh, Sky Satellite Television was running a country practice and they loved 
a country practice. <laughs> and, uh, and so when he was coming to Australia to do his tour, he said, oh, I love it, and particularly like Fatso the Wombat. I want to meet Fatso the Wombat. <laughs> uh, but uh, he couldn't do that. Well, mind you, this, about that stage, this was our, the fourth or fifth uh, wombat who was playing yeah. Fatso. Uh, we, we had to get rid of them as they reached uh, puberty because they started biting people's ankles. <laughs> so anyway, but they couldn't. Uh, Heatherdale was where the wombat was, was, uh, was living uh, in real life, uh, and they couldn't release him to be taken into town to be sort of put up for publicity, you know. So he said, oh, well, all right, well, um, Dr. Bowen, is, you know, <laughs> I'd love to meet Dr. Bowen. You know, good guy, and he's, you know, he really does a great job. And I said, no, well, sorry, but, you know, you're, you're very out of date in Switzerland. Dr. Bowen left the show five years ago or three years ago. So I said, oh, who's left? <laughs> uh, so, oh, um, well, it's still Terence Elliott. Oh, all right, he'll do. <laughs> so... <laughs> so I got to come, but um, I, I was going to uh, meet him um, before the show at the uh, entertainment centre. And I said, well, uh, I'll condone to meet him as long as I can bring my teenage children because you know, it was a, a nighttime thing and I had to get like being mm. home at night. You know? uh, so I, I took uh, Fiona and, and Polly and Ben. Uh, to meet him, along with um, uh, Brett Climo, who was a real fan. <laughs> so we all we all met him there before the show, and he came out uh, from the dressing room and uh, talked to us, and he was uh, utterly charming, uh, a really nice guy, a great small talk, you know, included all the kids and, and things, and, uh, and, and I hoped that we'd enjoy the show, and uh, and, and then he, uh, and he went away and... Uh, I went into the show and it was very loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's, but the am- kids liked it. <laughs> That's amazing. Did, was is there any photographic evidence of you all there together with him? There must um, be, surely. There were some photographs somewhere, but I I, I, I don't have any, and I never saw any of them. Uh, mm. How exciting. Look, thank you so much. This has yeah, been thank you. this has been such a delight. Like yeah. <laughs> and and so and so um like we've been excited and nervous about this interview from the second <laughs> that we uh that we booked in to speak with you and you've just been amazing. So thank you oh, so it was, much. It was, it was it was actually lovely to revisit, you know. For okay. a long time I, I really didn't you know, I really didn't want anything to do with country practice saying, you know, mm. I've got to get on uh, yeah. other things. That's and uh, all that part of the of being typecast and all that, trying to get rid of that. But now, <laughs> I, I, yeah, we were very proud of what we made uh, yeah. at the time. We were very proud of making it, and it was a pleasure to make the, the whole thing. So it's been uh, been a pleasure to revisit. So thank you very much. Oh, that's great. Good. Thank you so much. And you should be proud because, look, at I mean, how many other shows are being talked about yeah. all these years later? And any time, you know, any time either of us put anything on social media or the likes about a country practice, everybody wants to engage and talk yeah. and remember yeah. this or remember that. Yeah. 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 You're quite the heartthrob too on our <laughs> Facebook page. The 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 um the sort of 40-year-old women who were children just can't get over <laughs> how they thought you were like a dad back then and then they've grown up and we're yeah. all the same age now yes. as Dr. Terrence. <laughs> yes. I, uh, at, at the time I always, you know, when uh, Grant and, and Shane and, and people like that were sort of, you know, having teenagers and 20-year-olds sort of flocking around them and, 
and they'd come up to me and say, oh, my mum loves you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, Kim, what a lovely dreamboat. How lucky were we? I I still can't believe we interviewed Shane Porteous. I know. I know. And he was so happy to do it. He was so generous with his time. He was so generous with his stories. It's my dream Mm. that one day, Kim, we'll get to do a live interview with him. Yes. Like at a a listener event, we have all our pod friends in the audience. Hopefully he just won't have listened to the interview and how much you've objectified him. <laughs> how much I've objectified him. <laughs> Hopefully you won't have been cancelled by then yes. for your objectification. I think I'm very much on the edge of being cancelled. That's definitely a risk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Kim, shall we go to the fashions of the field? I think that's a great idea. Let's start with yours because I've got a very out-of-the-box suggestion oh. for this week. Okay, I've got two. Mm-hmm. I really, really loved Shirley's blinged up black jumper when Terence has everybody over for dinner. It's just magnificent. And also, I really was very warmed by, in a non-objectification, but in a practical clothing way, um, Terence's outdoorsy garb, like his camping garb, which he has like a khaki shirt on and jeans. Yeah. Or, I love Terence going bush fashion. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, I I loved the practicality of everything that he wore in that weather. Um, (laughs) I'm not actually going with a person's fashion. I'm going with the very fashionable apartment of Terence's ex-wife, Rowena. Wasn't it just? I mean, the decor was was sharp grey, I think is a very good way Mm -hmm. to put it. What do you, yeah, you go. It looked like the set of every David Williamson play I have ever seen <laughs> in my entire entire life. It was very 1980s, we're in the city now, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was very, very modern. Like I think that a lot of the decor in a country practice houses was modern 20 years ago. Whereas I think Rowena is getting a full Renault fit out every five years. Totally. Um. Just backtracking, though, on the fashion, some of Bethany's fashion post-Wildling was really fabulous too. Some of the little sort of pinafore dresses that Terence had her decked out in, in the montages where they were eating ice cream together and the like, <laughs> I thought were really cute little outfits as well. Did I see a Ken Doan jumper in this episode as well? I can't quite remember now, but I feel like I saw a jumper with a Ken Doan design on it. Oh, wow. I certainly didn't pick that out. I might just be... But- blending all of my Sydney episodes together though because maybe it was in the Sophie episode <laughs> that's the dream though I'd love a Ken Doan I've got a Ken Doan jumper Kim oh there you go you're living your dream yeah <laughs> I am living my dream they're absolutely wonderful uh, we'll post those pics up on our Facebook page a country podcast I'm on Twitter you can find me there at Melanie Tate and I'm at Kim Lester and some news it's our last episode of series one of ACP can you believe it we've done eight episodes and we've loved every second We really have. And we can't thank you enough for your support and sharing the pod and sending us messages and discussing the events of the podcast and the show with us online. It's been amazing. I can't believe it really has how many people are just into this. I mean, I can believe it, but I also can't believe it. It's so humbling and exciting. Um, We'll be Mm. back with series two early next year. And Keep your eyes on the feed because we might have a Christmas surprise episode. 
Woohoo! And it's a really great surprise too. Yeah. Like it's a surprise, you know, it's going to be a good one. Our thanks very much to composer Nate Edmondson for our great theme, uh, which is riffing on the original ACP theme by Mike Pajanic. Please, if you've got any time over Christmas, rate and review us on iTunes. That would be fantastic. Have a lovely holiday. I hope you get to chill out and let's put 2020 behind us mm. and be looking forward to a really great 2021. Indeed. Chill out, overeat, enjoy. Enjoy.